it's really important for you know people living in modern day to know that these things didn't just they didn't just happen right mm -hmm. somebody had to invent them and people had to live through you know being told no mm -hmm. again and again and again until they broke through and they did it by being inventive and not not accepting no as the final answer From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. One of my favorite people to talk to in our field is Mike Hudson, director of the Museum at the American Printing House for the Blind. His knowledge regarding the history of our field is beyond reproach. You're going to enjoy this. So I'm Mike Hudson. Um, I uh, am the director of the Museum of the American Printing House for the Blind here in Louisville, Kentucky. My master's degree is in the history of technology, and I got that from the University of Delaware in 1987. I'm a Kentuckian born and bred, and I moved back here to work at the State Historical Society in our capital of Frankfurt, and I worked there for about 18 years in museum collections. And in 2005, the founding director here at the museum, Carol Toby, had retired, and so they were looking to replace her, and I was looking for a, a change of venue, too, and so um, I applied, got it, and uh, so I've been, been here ever since. So uh, the printing house dates back to 1858, and uh, there was a guy named Dempsey Sherrod. He's from Mississippi. He was blind himself. He had graduated from the Mississippi School for the Blind, and he was unhappy because even though he had been taught to read, there were very few books in accessible formats. And so he starts traveling around the South trying to get uh, government officials in the states excited about creating this national supplier of accessible textbooks. And um, and that's pretty much where how we get we get founded through his his promotional efforts. You know, he started out just making books in raised letters, and uh, and then eventually Braille, and then they started making you know audio books and books in large type. And um, in the 1950s, uh, started manufacturing a lot of educational aids. And so the company just kind of grew as the field of blindness, literacy, and learning for people that are blind grew until by about 1970, it was the largest manufacturer of educational products for people that were blind in the world. And as you might imagine in, in this old, you know, in this company that had been around so long, you know, there was all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. just kind of accumulating in closets and corners and old printing equipment and, you know, classic books and classic products and stuff. And they also, you know, uh, would acquire the products of other companies so that they could study them, you know, things that other companies were making. We would always, you know, kind of dabble in collecting some of those, see what they were going on, what was going on there. And so it was all this stuff. And so um, some people at, at APH in the in the late 1980s said, you know, what we really need is 
we need a we need a museum. And we'd always been doing factory tours, at least as far back mm. as the 1930s. There's always been people would come to Louisville and be fascinated about this very, very unusual company that was located over on Frankfurt Avenue. And so we were already doing factory tours. And so they're like, hey, let's 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 kind of formalize this. And so they hired uh, Carol Toby, who was uh, a, uh, a lady uh, here in, in Louisville who had been working in, in museums, mainly art museums. And Carol helped work with the staff. And and they hired a, a exhibit designer to come in and you know actually install um, you know very professional mm-hmm. exhibits, and um, and and my thing has always been um, collecting, mm-hmm. and so for the 16 years I've been here, you know I've been working with lots of other institutions that had collected their history, but they it had gotten beyond them to to um to take care of this stuff and so i think the very first big collection i acquired for the printing house was the um aer the association mm-hmm. for education and rehabilitation of people who are blind visually impaired their orientation and mobility training group um o and m um division had um uh, because of this guy um warren bledsoe Warren had kind of taken it on himself to kind of document the birth of orientation and mobility. And so they accumulated this really wonderful archive that was stored at the time at the Maryland School for the Blind. There was this guy named Mike Medier, okay, who who is on the staff of, I think, Guiding Eyes for the Blind in San Rafael, California. I probably got the name right that wrong there. But 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 Mike Medier was here at APH for some kind of a meeting in Louisville. And and the next thing you know, Mike put me in touch with the people who were kind of behind the AER uh, um, Orientation and Mobility Division archives. And they were ex- ex- just really excited that we were excited about them, right? And so that's really what I've been doing for 16 years, is just being excited about other people's stories and saying, yeah, we will take care of that for you. And so we've gotten just a number of great collections, and it's helped us grow to the point where I do believe, as you said, that the collection of the museum here at APH is the largest and and most comprehensive collection of, on literacy and learning for people that are blind or visually impaired in the world. You know, um, it's it's great that you mentioned collecting stuff from folks because uh, I've been helping a, a lady who retired from the field quite a while ago, and she has a large collection of old journals and things like that. And so I had reached out to um, your, I guess, your archives department, which, mm-hmm. um, and just shared a list of what she had. And they said, oh, we're missing these items from our collection. Can you give them to us? And so it's yes. it's such a great way to have a cons- one place where they're trying to get a complete collection of our work. So I just love that. Yes. So we've been, you know, we collect and we collect and we collect and we collect. You would think at some point we would get to the point where every time anybody gave us that phone call, we go, no, we already have it. Right. But we never do. <laughs> yeah. There's always something in that offering, you know, where we, maybe when somebody's cleaning out a storage, a resource uh, room at, at a school or, or, or at the State Department of Education or, or a, you know, training program, there's always something we're like, oh, wow. Um no one has saved that, mm-hmm. and we need that. 
you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's exciting. Like right now in front of me, I have a Braille writer that I found on Etsy that was made in the Soviet Union hmm. back in the 1960s, and the person that sold it to me was living in Ukraine. Oh wow. <laughs> I mean, given what's been going yes. on, you know, the last week or so, it's yeah. just, you know, what an amazing survival, mm-hmm. you know. Now, speaking of good stuff, I know you all have um, sort of retained responsibility of the Helen Keller archives. And also, um, I know you have an original Louis Braille book, and those are sort of the two most famous names, I think, in our work. Um, so can you tell us anything about their acquisition and sort of the impact on the museum's popularity, maybe? Well, let's start out with the um, the Braille book, sure. okay? So yeah. it's the Presede, the method, and it's the first publication of the Braille Code um, written by Louis Braille and published in 1829. Wow. And not published in Braille, because at the time, the, the system that they were using uh, was raised letters. So mm-hmm. it's basically a book written in raised embossed letters that introduces this idea of writing, reading and writing in dots. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and using it in lots of creative ways, you know, for music and for, for, uh, for literary um, um, endeavors, all that stuff that's all in that book. Okay, and there's that we know of, Emily. There are only six copies of this book left in the whole world. Wow. If you remember, in 2009, we were celebrating Louis's 200th birthday, okay? And the National Federation of the Blind had uh, partnered with the Mint to produce this commemorative coin. And um, I was on their website buying a copy of that coin for our collection, you know, just kind of, you know, documenting, mm-hmm. you know, the way that we remember our heroes, right? And they had a scan of this book, okay? And um, it it belonged at the time to this bookseller in New York City. And so I got in touch with the guy, and it, it literally took like eight years to negotiate and eventually uh, purchase this book. Um, it, you know, if you think about the Presede, the introduction, the very first publication of the Braille Code and how significant Braille has been for literacy and learning for people that are blind or visually impaired, it's just amazing. It's, it's like getting a copy of the Bible, yeah. the New Testament, you know? Mm-hmm. And then – um, AFB had been going through American Foundation of the Blind had been going through a lot of changes, and they had moved out of their. They, you know, they were headquartered in New York from when they were uh, founded in uh, 1921 to, you know, uh, just a few years ago, and so they didn't. They no longer had a place to store. Um, their new digs were going to be a little bit smaller than than their than their place in New York, and so they were looking for a place, somebody to partner with to do something with their Helen Keller archive. So Helen, of course, this amazing <laughs> diplomat, advocate, social justice warrior, um, you know, uh, one of the most famous people who are uh, women, American women of the 19th and 20th mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. Forget the disability, right? right? She's just well-known. And uh, she, when she died in 1968, she left all of her papers, all of her possessions to AFB. Anyways, long story short, we we partnered with AFB to bring the Helen Keller Archive here to Louisville. And um, and so right now, when you walk into our exhibit, you can you can actually 
come right up to Helen's desk from her home at Arcan Ridge, where she wrote, you know, books, articles, newspaper uh, accounts, magazines, you know, everything that she wrote between about 1947 or so and and 1968, her death, you know, everything was written at that desk. Yeah. Um, And we've literally had people come in and just weep. Yeah you know, at that, at that desk. And, uh, and what we've been doing is, is alternating every three months, we put out different things, um, from the archive, b- both photographs and documents and, and, and then, uh, objects like right now in the display case, we have three different artworks of Helen by this American sculptor named Joe Davidson. Mm. And he was one of her good friends, and um, she, you know, she kind of traveled in this very intelligentsia, you know, authors, writers, journalists, or, uh, you know, artists. You know, she was friends with all those people, and and she somehow or other got friends with Joe Davidson. He he sculpted her many many times, mm. and so those are those are out to be to be seen right now. Um, you know, how do you think the history housed at APH can help inform our future work and advances in our field? You know, what can we learn from it or what can people learn from it by coming to visit? First off, I think it's really important to know that, that things have not always been the way they are now. Um, and by that, I mean that there was a day when just because you had a disability, you were not considered to be worthy to get an education. Mm-hmm. And and people that were blind and visually impaired weren't alone, okay? Mm-hmm. Women didn't get to be educated. If your skin wasn't the right color or or you weren't the right member of the right social class, you didn't get to be education. Education was rationed, right? Mm-hmm. And more than that, even if somebody wanted to uh, teach a kid that was blind or visually impaired how to read, there was no technology to do it. There was no no one knew how to do it. It all had to be invented from scratch. And so I, I think the thing that I I think the overarching takeaway is is just this this how human ingenuity overcomes obstacles that are placed in its way. Hmm. And, and it doesn't all happen at once and it doesn't happen in a steady stream and it probably doesn't happen as fast as 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 we might want it to, but it's really important for, you know, people living in modern day to know that these things didn't just, they didn't just happen, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody had to invent them and, and, and people had to live through, you know, being told no Mm -hmm. again and again and again until they, you know, broke through and they did it by being inventive and um, and not taking no, not not accepting no as the final answer. Um, so you know our collection is about the history of literacy and learning, but it's also about the social experiment that we're still living through mm-hmm. of um, of trying to make sure that um, everybody has an opportunity to achieve at the highest level. Well, you know, you get to spend your days in one of the coolest places and um, get to give tours to families and kids and professionals. Um, have you had any moments in the museum that that really stood out that were like were a really impactful point in time for an individual to see something or experience something? 
I, I really think it happens every day. Yeah. And, and it happens in different ways for different people, depending on where they are in their own journey. So for, for people who knew nothing about blindness, okay, which is the vast majority of the people that come to our museum, they, they, don't know, they know nothing about uh, blindness and they don't know anybody who's blind, yeah. right? Uh, and so they're really ignorant. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I just sure. mean they're very ignorant about what it means. And so the museum helps them understand that, um, that people that are blind and reason impaired have the same hopes, dreams, and aspirations as anybody else. And, and to accomplishment them, they're going to have to use different techniques, but that those techniques a lot of times are not rocket science. It's right. It's right. just doing them different ways. And they're pretty fascinated with those ways. Mm-hmm. So I see that every day. Okay. I see people come in and go, Oh, wow. I never thought of that. I didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how it's done. Oh, that's really that's really fascinating. So I see that all the time. I think for for people that are uh, blind or visually impaired, um, I, you know, I think they're just proud that someone is interested in their story. Mm. And so I see that all the time too. You know, uh, they you know a lot of times we big we we tend to take the for granted our own things that we use right our the braille writer we use or the the refreshable braille display that we use or whatever you know and here it is you know <laughs> in a case <laughs> with a label yeah and you know we're talking about the significance of it you know um, and so your you know I mean, your own life ends up in a museum somewhere I think people love that and so I, I do see that a lot I think there's some inspiration. Moments. I, I know, as I mentioned before, that I've seen people literally reach out and put their hand on Helen's desk and begin to weep. You know, um, so museums have that power sometimes. Mm-hmm. When when you're right there with something real that Helen touched herself, um, and you know, our museum is designed to be as accessible as possible. Yeah. That's not to say that we're letting everybody, you know, touch everything all the time, but where we can put out examples for th- to be touched, or uh, we do. Our labels are in large print and Braille and audio, um, and if we can't put a real thing out to be touched, we try to put a reproduction out. Mm-hmm. So, and, and some of our cases literally open. And so if you're a blind or vision impaired user, you might be exploring an artifact by touch that most of the visitors just explore with their vision. So um, we try to make we try to make the equivalent experience, you know, that it's just as entertaining and exciting and interesting for people of all different abilities. Now, I know you have a famous piano there that everybody wants to play when they come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I have to walk back there and stop that. Yeah. So. Uh, Colette Bauman at, um, in Michigan, yeah. um, worked with us. Uh, of course I love Colette a lot. Of course, and, me too. But a few years ago, she worked with us to, to bring this piano that was used in the auditorium at the Michigan School for the Blind while, uh, a young unknown musician named Stevie Wonder was going to school at Michigan School for the Blind. Um, and so we have, have the piano out. Um, but you know, what's funny is that the piano is just a piano and it's kind of like the desk, really. There's nothing special about this desk, Helen's desk, you know, it's just a desk. 
But when you know the story behind the piano, it gets better, yeah. right? So, so Stevie is 12 years old. He's just had a hit. Um, he's supposed to be going to this Fitzgerald Elementary in Detroit, which is where – in Detroit at that time, they – uh, you could you could go to public school if you were blind as long as you went to a designated school, and his was this Fitzgerald Elementary. But he wasn't in class because he was either over at Motown recording or he was touring, and he was in trouble. And his mom, Lula, was in trouble, and Barry Gordy was in trouble with the <laughs> truant officers in the Detroit school system, right? Mm-hmm. So this Louisville promoter, Louisville, Kentucky, wants to bring little Stevie Wonder – to Louisville to do a concert. And Barry Gordy's like, oh, man, we're in trouble. You can't do that. And this promoter's like, hey, I have an idea. What if we hire a tutor and they travel around with the little Stevie Wonder while he's on the road? That'll get you out of trouble. And they're like, huh, who could we get? And this promoter's like, I'm going to go over to the Kentucky School for the Blind and see what they can do. And so they, he went over there. I found this lady, Peggy Traub, who had just retired after 35 years working at the Kentucky School for the Blind. My boss, when I started here, Gary Mudd, Peggy Traub was his elementary school teacher. Wow. (laughs) So Peggy Traub, this middle-aged white woman, gets on the Motown bus review and goes on one or two trips with Stevie Wonder and then decides, whoo, this is no place for me, and puts them in touch with the Michigan School for the Blind where they hired this guy, uh, Ted Hull, who had was a was a low vision guy and he had just graduated with his degree in special ed from Michigan State University. And so Ted Hull travels around all over the world with with Stevie Wonder while he's on tour until he graduates from high school. And then when Stevie's not on the road, he lives uh, at the Michigan School for the Blind um, and goes to school there. And so when you get that whole story, now the piano has a lot more, you know, <laughs> meaning because it's a really it's a story about how teachers and educators helped Stevie Wonder become Stevie Wonder. Wow. That's just so crazy to, to I never even thought about like truant officers being after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're 12, they frown on it. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, you know, but makes you wonder how many of those kids, you know, uh, were in the same. I'm thinking of like the Jackson Five now on tour. Yes, like, yes. Or, or were they all? Which in you know, the the schools for the residential schools for the blind, the historic schools, they had amazing music programs at that time. Yeah, that's a pretty cool exhibit. There is there anything else out there that you just that you know about that you wish APH had, but for whatever reason. It's not in your collection yet. That list is getting shorter. (laughs) (laughs) You've been busy. (laughs) We have been busy. I will say this, that there are early digital Braille embossers, Mm -hmm. like the uh, Telesensory LED 120 Mm -hmm. that I would really like to get. There are... um, a number of, of early, well, not a number, but there are a few early refreshable Braille displays mm-hmm. that I'm still, you know, you know, what happens to technology, Emily, is that, you know, the minute you buy it, it's hot stuff. And six days later, it's junk, yep. you know? Yeah. And, and so, um, I had this, this thing where I, I was up at the, um, uh, I was up at the, uh, 
um, Catholic guild in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, working on bringing the Father Thomas Carroll collection back here. Mm. And uh, the the AV tech guy there is uh, Brian Charlson. And I was talking to Brian about this telesensory LED-120. It was a very early digital braille embosser. And he's like, you know, we threw one of those away yesterday. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. So because, you know, you know once, it's, once it's obsolete, really it is junk mm-hmm. to everybody except me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's a priceless treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are still uh, examples of those. And, and I st- I'm st- like just... Within the last three weeks, I found an example of this press board writing guide, um, which was used to teach kids in the 19th century uh, handwriting skills. And it was one of the first educational aids that APH made, um, starting in the late 1870s, early 1880s. And I found one of those, um, and we, we didn't have one. So, you know, I we do still find things all the time that are that are um maybe we didn't even know what what they were now when when APH comes out with new products do you look at it from the lens of 50 years down the road and think is this going to stand the test of time and going to be an exhibit someday <laughs> yeah that's a great question and and i i don't think any of us know yeah you know, what are we making right now that, you know, is the most significant product? And he never could answer the question because mm-hmm. we just, you know, it takes some time. It takes some perspective to take a step back and and, and see what is um, what's going to make a big difference. And, and just one example of that is, okay, so we did an exhibit for our 150th anniversary in 2008. And I was looking for the, like the hottest, most up-to-date modern product that was killing it at the time <laughs> to put in this exhibit, mm-hmm. okay? And it was a thing called a book port. Oh, yeah. Which was a digital book reader, mm-hmm. okay? Well, it turns out the book, book port was gone in a blink of an eye, <laughs> replaced by your cell phone. Yeah. And, you know, your cell phone has replaced a lot of what what we used to joke around here as the blind bat utility belt, you know, where you had to have 17 different, you know, electronic devices. And the phone does a lot of them now all in one. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a lot, uh, you know, and the, and the, you know, things like the book port um, are, are just quaint pieces of, you know, junk. Right. You know, I just saw a book port um, in my, so my son is blind and I saw a book port in his closet the other day and I was looking at it thinking, why don't we use that thing anymore? And now you yeah. just said it because it's all on his iPad. So it's all on his, yes, it's all on his tablet or his, or his, or his phone. And yeah. uh, it's just very easy and intuitive to use. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the phone has mm. just been a real boon. Yeah. Um, well, I'm excited to see what comes down the line for the museum and what it looks like. You know, it, and the other thing, too, that you think about is some of that equipment that you thought would have been way antiquated by now, like a Perkins Braille writer, is still yes. a standard go-to. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and APH has tried and tried and tried to come up with a better Braille writer than the yeah. Perkins, and it, it just has failed. Because yeah. you can chalk an 18-wheeler with it. Yeah. And then it still writes. <laughs> That's it's right. just 
almost indestructible. Yeah. Well, Mike, that was pretty much all the questions I had for you. But did you? was there anything else you wanted to share about the museum or promote or anything like that? Well, just this. Okay, so we have created social media pages. Um, right now we're on Facebook and Twitter. And we talk about a lot of these things. Like on Mondays, we usually do a Monday mystery object. Mm. Um, we do videos. You know, we, we introduce a lot of books and, 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 and movies and stuff about our topic and, um, and share, you know, stuff that we're discovering at the museum every day. And so the, those are both found at, at APH Museum at APH Museum, and we would we would love for folks to go to those uh, those pages and enjoy them and follow them and share them with their friends. And if you're interested in the history of literacy and learning for people that are blind and vision impaired, I think you'll, you'll find that you like that, those pages. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. From Louis Braille to Helen Keller to Stevie Wonder, Mike is full of fascinating stories and anecdotes that inform our work. It's true, we can't know where we're going without understanding where we've been. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. Uh, just kidding. This is Nathan, the producer. See you next time. Happy April Fools. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.